I got a question for you. Uh, do you think God can use you? Just overall, yes or no? Do you think God can use you? Yes. All right. What if you're not willing? I want to introduce you to a man named Gob. Not God. Gob. Ezekiel 38. Read with me. Uh, let's read the first six verses to start. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief priest of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his hordes. Beth Togarmah with, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes. Many peoples are with you. God is looking forward, talking to his prophet, telling him to prophesy to this foreign king. You might not be much on geography. Some of these names I did not know when I first read this, and so I had to kind of look a couple of things up. The land of Magog is not just talked about here. It's actually talked about in another place of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, John uh, talks about Gog and Magog as two different lands. Here, Gog is a person, and Magog is the place where he reigns. These two other places, Meshech and Tubal, are mentioned as well, especially in uh, Genesis, in the Table of Nations. We find out that these are some of the descendants of Noah through, I think it's Japheth. These are places up to the north. So if you look at a map and you look at Israel, up to the north, way north of Israel, you would find Magog, along with Meshech and Tubal and some other places up that way. All of that represented in this one king that he's prophesying to named God. Now, uh, you might say, well, um, some of the rest of these, Persia, Persia's not to the north. Persia is actually to the east. So if you're looking at Israel, a map of Israel, you have the Jordan River coming down and the, the, the Dead Sea down here. On this side, the, uh, this over here is Persia. Put. Uh, your Bible might say Cush, your Bible might say Ethiopia. Those are down in North Africa, to the south of Israel. So you have people to the south, you have people to the east, you have people to the north. Do you notice something? There's a giant sea to the west, so nobody's coming from the west. But you basically have all of these armies combining together, all with their sights set on one land, and that is the land of Israel. We're going to have us a showdown. Be ready, verse 7, and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the later years you will go against the land that is restored from war. Listen to how he describes Israel. The land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered 
from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. That's an important description of Israel. What he's saying is this is a place that was decimated by war and it had gone through all of that decimation. It had been desolate. It had been left in ruins. And now it is no longer that way. Now people have returned. Now people have been gathered from the nations and brought back there. Now this place is inhabited again and they are setting their eyes toward it. Because when they look at Israel, when they look at this nation, when they look at these people, they see a people that have been through a lot of hardships, but they don't have a lot of protection. They don't have a lot of cities built up, walls about them. They don't have a vast army to protect them. They don't have the resources of a strong and mighty nation. They are, well, let's put it quite bluntly. They, bluntly, they are almost refugees in their own home now. They've just come back, trying to get settled, trying to start their life again, trying to be on that path of restoration. And now there are enemies looking to assault them and assail them and obliterate them once more. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. They were all over the place. We have a name for the we nation that is scattered abroad. It's a name that applies to other peoples too, but it's mostly used of the Jews. It's called the diaspora. Have you heard it? The Jewish diaspora is all over Europe, Africa, and Asia. All over the place are Jews, native Jews, who haven't been able to go back home. Who may have, might have had the opportunity, but might not have. That's why there were so many Jews in the confines of Germany during World War II. Austria, Poland, and Eastern Europe. They had been scattered. Jews that had been scattered from the exile, that had built their communities, that had done their work, and that were still scattered. There's Jews, if, if you go to New York, there's a big Jewish population. If you go to any major city in the world, you'll probably find a Jewish population. There might not be such a big one in Tokyo or in Hong Kong, but in most cities around the world, you will find there is a group of Jewish people that live in their community, that try to practice their faith, that are scattered still today. This is a yet future prophecy. This isn't something that has been completely fulfilled. There's a sense in which God has started to fulfill it. We can look at history and we can see where God brought some of the Jews back into the land. And you read the book of Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that. You'll see Jews coming back into the land and trying to do the work that God had led them to do. In Nehemiah especially, you'll see them trying to rebuild the walls and being, uh, being under threat of attack from Sanballat and, and other local rulers. People who didn't want them to rebuild. 
and how Nehemiah refuses to cooperate with them, refuses to, to say, to, to go in with treaty with them and just basically says, this is what God's called us to do. We're going to do what God called us to do. And they're working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, building the wall in 52 days. That whole story has some of the rings of this. But there's a future fulfillment. This hasn't really been fulfilled yet. There is coming a day when people attack the nation of Israel. I'm not just talking about the geopolitical nation of Israel as it exists today. I'm talking about the people of Israel, the Jewish nation that God brings back into its homeland. There is coming a day, mark my words, when they will be under attack. I'm going to ask the question again. Can God use you? Can he use you if you're not willing? That's what I like about God. I love how God works. Sometimes God does things that are just so simple and easy, and you're just like, of course. And then sometimes God does things that are so complicated, and you're just like, why would you go through all this trouble? And then you see it all unfold, and you say, wow, that's why you did all this. You're good. You're good. Let me show you what he's doing. You will advance, verse 9, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many people with you. Now at this point, it sounds like, oh no, Israel is doomed. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. Wait a minute. I thought you said God was working. Hang on. And say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. Do you, do you see the helplessness of the people of Israel in that statement? Unwalled villages. Now, if you want to protect yourself, you need walls. Pretty basic thing. Right? No city that day can stand for very long without walls. None. It was too dangerous. Well, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I also think it's funny that he's talking about villages, not cities. That's an important thing. These folks can't even get a city together right. These folks are just in villages. They're just living wherever they can. It doesn't even matter. They're, they're not massing together and building great things and infrastructure and these massive cities. No, they are in these little tiny hamlets dot, dotted across the countryside because that's all they can manage to get together right now. This is a hopeless situation. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely. Hopeless. Hopeless. There's nothing they can do to defend themselves. They don't have weapons. They don't have any sort of defense. What is going to happen? They're going to get decimated, right? I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. They don't even, they don't even have gates. How many of you have doors on your houses? It's like not even having a door on your house. Now, in where I live, 
That's not so much of a problem because of people as it is because of bugs and snakes and other kinds of varmin and critters. But can you imagine just being out in the open, completely exposed to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, they're starting to build their lives again, who dwell at the center of the earth. This is a center that is not only a center sort of geopolitically. You got Europe and Asia and Africa and all of it's connected by this land bridge. And what's in that land bridge? Israel. The most prosperous trade route of the day. It's called the King's Highway. Guess where it ran? Right through Israel. The place to be, the place to own, the place to have control of where you've got access to the sea and three different continents is Israel. And so in that sense, it's like the center of the earth. It's not the real center of the earth. We know it's not really the middle of the earth. But in a sense, it is. You get that one location, you, you can go anywhere. But there's also a center of the earth theologically. This is the place that's most important to God. Not most important just because God created this place better than everything else. No, most important because God has said, this place is mine. This is where I'm going to put my name. This is where I'm going to build my kingdom. This is where I'm going to have my people. This place is my unique possession among the nation. It is the center of the world theologically as well as geopolitically. Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? They want to hear the tale. They want to hear how it's going. They want to know what's going on. By all accounts, this ought to be a slaughter. Great hordes against tiny unwalled villages. Massive armies against no declared army. Did you see that? Did you notice that? No army has been mentioned for Israel in this passage. Did you see that? That's important. This is a people who are helpless and hopeless against this sort of onslaught. Therefore, verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day... On that day, that faraway day, that day of which I'm speaking, that lies yet future, that you have not seen, but I have seen because I am the Lord. That day that you cannot predict, but I have already determined in the vastness of my knowledge and in my sovereign reign over the world. That day... When my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Won't you see it coming? 
You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the earth. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. He's using language that harkens back to Exodus. The cloud of locusts rising over the land of Egypt to destroy the crops. You see the picture? The, the cloud. He's also talking about this, like this great cloud of locusts is the Babylonian army that has risen against Israel to decimate it. By all accounts, this ought to be horrifyingly bad for Israel. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. His holiness through a foreign king that does not even know him. Keep reading, verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? This is something that had been predicted before. If you look back in the prophets, you will see that this has been predicted before. But on that day, oh, that day far, far into the future, that day that I have already determined in my sovereign knowledge and will, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger, for in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Oh, we begin to see now. We begin to see what happens. Do you hear the creation language? The birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the, and the creatures on the ground and every creeping thing and all the people on the face of the earth. Do you hear the language? Do you hear the language of the flood? Of the things that are destroyed in the flood? Do you hear the language that he's using, harking back and weaving in all of these things into the tale to show you just how devastating, just how mighty the hand, the hand of the Lord will be in this situation? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Does it strike you deep within the very center of your soul? He says, on that day, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains. Verse 21, declares the Lord God. That is the first time we know in this passage what God is up to. 
Up until this point, it has been utter disaster for the people of Israel. And now in verse 21, now we get to see a glimpse of what God is doing. He's bringing the sword against Gog. He's not using God to judge his people. He's judging Gog. Wait a minute. I thought, I thought this was God's idea. I thought he was the one devising. I thought he was the one planning. I thought he was the one scheming all this. Here is the tension. Some people say we have free will. We determine what we do. God can't infringe on that free will. He doesn't infringe on that free will. So whatever we do, it's our fault. It's up to us. And so if we do wrong, then we're to blame. If we do right, great. Some people say God is sovereign. He controls all things. Whatever God says will happen, will happen. And there's nothing that we can do to stop that. So if God determines that this person is going to have a hard heart, God determines that this person is not going to follow his will, there's nothing that person can do but that. The tension comes in trying, because both are attested in Scripture. They don't seem to fit, do they? Both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are both attested in Scripture. But how do you make the hand fit the glove? How do you make them come together in such a way that explains how man can be responsible while God be sovereign? And all I can answer is yes. Man is responsible even in the midst of God's sovereignty. Spurgeon said he makes it a habit not to uh, start a fight between friends when he was asked about this. How do you reconcile sovereignty and free will? He said, I make it a habit not to start a quarrel between friends. That's what he said. Here's what's happening. God in his sovereignty is putting God right where he wants him to go. God in his evil mind is doing what he wants to do all the while walking straight in for where God wants him to be. I want to argue for you tonight that yes, God can use you, even if you're not willing. Let me show you what God does through God. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him. Torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God is going to take a people, a massive army that is against him. And he's going to bring them to judgment so that everybody knows he's in charge.
What could Israel do to win this battle? Nothing. They're completely helpless. Well, now they have something like that. They have the most important thing of all. As Paul said in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? Doesn't mean people won't try. It just means they won't be successful. Chapter 39. He goes back and he repeats some of this stuff, but it's kind of interesting because he goes into more detail on how he's going to bring this about. And you, son of man, prophesy against God and says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Your verse right there, uh, uh, both in chapter 38.1 and in 39.2, or 39.1 and 38.2, excuse me, I got those backwards. Your, yours may refer to a place called Rosh. Anybody have that in their Bible? Rosh? Okay. Rosh is a... It's debated among scholars whether this is a separate place or whether it's a title. Rosh, as a word, can mean head or chief. And so the version I'm reading from uh, calls him chief priest. That's how they account for that word. In some Bibles, it may look like a separate place name, Rosh. Um, we're not quite sure technically which it is. I, I lean more toward the chief side, but that's, that's me not being a professional scholar in the matter. So. But yours, yours may have it as different places. I think the same, it's, it gives the same idea overall, though. This is a guy who's in charge of places to the north. I just, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know if some of you may see that in your versions and have the question. So. And I, verse 2, will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. Look, 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 at, the, look at the sovereignty in this verse. I will turn you. I will drive you forward. I will bring you up. I will lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands and they shall know that I am the Lord. What's interesting is these people are coming to bring devastation on an unprotected people and it comes, they come to find out not only are they protected, but they're protected by the Most High God and it's now their villages that are being burned. It's now their walls that are being torn down. It's now their families that are being destroyed along with them. Verse 7, why in my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. In case there's any doubt who's doing this, it's me. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Very quickly, I want to move you to the end of 39. Look in verse 21. 
And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Everybody's going to know he's God. When he does this, it's such a marvelous work. He gets the enemy to assemble themselves and bring themselves to the place where he is going to judge them in their sin. Only my God can do something like that. I don't know anyone else. You can set a trap for somebody. I don't know anyone else who can do this kind of thing. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. Because there are no other houses left around. <laughs> All these other people have been destroyed. All these other people have seen the effects of their sin brought upon them. And now Israel has a stark reminder. I'm the Lord. Verse 23, and the nation shall know. This is an interesting end. I didn't see this coming until I read these verses. The nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. What? See, here's the thing. At that day, they were talking about Israel and they were saying, God has deserted Israel. Their God has deserted them. Maybe their God is too weak. Maybe their God isn't very strong after all. Our gods are better than their gods. That's how we overtook them. That was the common thinking. If my God is better than your God, then my army is, will beat your army. Right? Because if your God's so good, he could at least protect your army. If your God was better than my God, then you'd be taking me over. But I took you over, so my God must be better. God said, I can't have this. It was because of their sin that they went into captivity. And the world needs to know that. You see, God will do things to punish the people who are living in sin. Told you, he can use you even if you're not willing. Sometimes he does them to warn others. That's the wrong way to go. Last thing, and we'll close with this. Because they dwelt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them to the hand of their adversaries, and they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. And I hid my face from them. See, it's not because God is too weak to protect them. It's because they had sin and their sin needs it. Sometimes God uses us even when we're not willing. I don't think I have to say this, but I will anyway. Don't let him use you one who's unwilling. Submit yourselves to God. Don't be the one who's unwilling to be the lesson to someone else. Let God do what he needs to do. 
Father, a sober reminder tonight that sometimes we need we need reminders like that sometimes that tell us that we can't we can't play around with this. As Jim was saying, we've got work to do. And this isn't just a life or death thing. This is an eternal life or eternal death. Father, I pray that we would be willing to do your will. We would follow you not out of coercion, not because we're just too scared of the consequences. God, because we love you. May you find in us willing servants. We may honor you with our lives. And through your decisions, Use us to do your will. Make us willing in the process so we can experience the fullness of what it is.